0: Alright, well this morning we come to Psalm 97. I've been uh, trying to include psalms that you had uh, indicated to me were your favorites. I still have a few more to go in that list. Um, And indulging a little bit, I guess, this morning, because this is one of my favorite psalms. But I think it it sets the stage for uh, some of the psalms that we'll be considering in the coming weeks that speak about and teach us about The sovereignty of God. And and for me, there's hardly a psalm that that says it more powerfully, that describes the sovereignty of God uh, more powerfully than Psalm 97. So that will be the text before us. This morning, let me read it for us. As always, this is the very word of the living God. Psalm 97. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness And all the people see his glory. All worshippers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous, and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Again, so ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word may be planted within us and bear fruit in our lives. Let me pray for us as we come before it this morning. Our Lord and our God, again, we ask your blessing here now as we come before your word. This is your word. We ask that you would fulfill your very own promise about it, that when it goes out, it does not return to you void, that instead it is successful in the things for which you send it and accomplishes the purposes for which you send it as well. For ourselves, we pray that you would fill us to overflowing with your Holy Spirit, so that our eyes and ears might be open, so that we might see and hear the things that you would have us learn this morning. In doing so, make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that we might walk according to what it teaches us. Father, all of this, as always, we ask in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. <clears throat> Who gets to make the rules? Who gets to decide what we can do and what we can't do as a society, as a people? Who determines what is right and what is wrong? And I ask those questions, and, and I'd be surprised if there's any doubt among us about, that, about how that really works today in our time. To me, I would describe it as, as a, a combination of the tyranny of the individual combined with the cult of tolerance. Because whatever an individual decides for himself or herself is sacred. We're called upon to honor it, to respect it, to accept it, even to support it and promote it. And society puts tremendous pressure upon us to do this, to tolerate it. It's a tyranny of the individual. It's a cult of tolerance. It's no surprise, to me at least, that we see this exhibited most prominently, most predominantly in the area of sexual practice and what's now become common in our language as sexual or gender identity. There's a reason that we've come to this point, I think. We can go back to the 60s. Free love for everybody led to the rise of Pornography, which is individual gratification. Premarital sex, which for many people is just individual recreation. Of adultery, which is my individual preference for how I gratify myself and with whom I do it. I get to choose, not the mores and dictates of society. The rise of a divorce, again, individual satisfaction. I'm tired of this person, let me go find someone else, and all the other things that we see happening. There's others who are better describing what happened and how it happened. I'd point you to Peter Jones at the Truth Exchange. If you don't know him and his work, you should. It's incredible and insightful and very valuable. It's not a surprise that today we're at a place where it's not just sexual practice that is degenerated into all sorts of behavior, but But people don't even know who they are. They choose to live as a different gender than the one one they are. Now people are choosing to live as as animals, as a different age than they really are. The abomination is, is escalating and it's rather frightening and disgusting. And we look at these things and we say, well that's happening out in the world and how terrible and... And awful that is, but quite honestly, many of these things are happening within the church as well. Some of them are rampant and growing. You may not know, but among our young people, hooking up, having sex. Or being friends with benefits, having sex. These are euphemisms. They're not uncommon among our youth and among our millennial-aged Young people. Living together before marriage is not uncommon, even among adults in churches. And we've talked for years about how divorce and remarriage, while not as prominent and prevalent as in the society around us, are still all too common in the church of Jesus Christ. These things happening for unbiblical reasons. And it's not just sex, it's not just gender. But in all sorts of ways, we choose for ourselves what is right and wrong. Based on nothing more than our own preferences. Often tempered by peer pressure. The Bible speaks of this. They're going to pressure you into all kinds of evil. And this is happening in our time today. You can't have the wrong preferences, according to the world around us. And you certainly can't be politically incorrect. So I think, again, we have a kind of tyranny that exists today. And it's a tyranny that's increasingly oppressive to those of us who hold to traditional values and biblical-based values. That's not surprising to me as well. I think, really, when it comes down to it, for mankind, we really have one of two choices. Either the tyranny of the individual or the sovereignty of God. I think it devolves into either the tyranny of the individual or you have to bow to the sovereignty of God. The tyranny of the individual, individual can look like what we have today. The elevation of our personal private choices above all else. And the demand for respect of those choices. And support of those choices. But, quite honestly, the tyranny of an individual can also look like a king, or a dictator, or a very powerful president. It's no surprise, again, to me, that those who are dissatisfied with our society and where it's going, especially those who don't know Christ, it bothers me even more for those who do know Christ, or claim to know Christ, have turned, in our time, to political candidates who are they're dictators in the making. They are tyrants in the making. Populist candidates who promise to make things happen, to get things done. We've heard this before. We're going to make the trains run on time. The bread carts are going to show up when they're supposed to. We've seen this before in history. It's okay, many people said in history. The trains are running on time. Things are efficient. Things are happening the way they're supposed to. I'll give up my freedoms and my liberty. Because that guy is getting it done. And this is the trajectory of how our government has gone, in my opinion, for quite some time. Not just the most recent occupant of the Oval Office, but others before him as well. The individual sovereignty we have today is actually kind of ironic, because it ends up suppressing the freedoms <laughs> of others, and so individual freedom ends up being squashed under the thumb of some powerful person who can fix things and make them right. So again, in my opinion, either the individual is sovereign, and we have tyranny, or God is sovereign. And I think that's been true since the garden, since the, the serpent tempted Eve and tempted Adam with the with the words that you can be king, you can be sovereign, you can be like God. The form of government doesn't matter. I don't really care about the form of government. If everyone acknowledges God to be the true sovereign, ultimately in control. Even our own founders, who are not necessarily Christian, just deists or or theists, admitted that there was a need of a God and a belief in a God to make this society work. Well, it ain't working. It's because we've abandoned the sovereignty of God as a fundamental principle for how we live our lives. And we can see the same result throughout history and around the world. So, Psalm 97. Psalm 97, again, is a favorite of mine. I, I don't know why I came across it, I think, in college, and it just resonated with me and has continued to do so through the years. I love the portrayal of God's sovereignty In this psalm, it's a majestic portrayal. It's a cause for rejoicing for all who love righteousness, as the psalm concludes. I want to look at this psalm in three sections this morning. People divide this psalm in many different ways. It's a hard one to outline. Um, I've seen two sections. I've seen as many as five. Um, If you're following along in the ESV, (coughs) you'll see it divided a little bit differently than I will this morning. But uh, the way I like to look at it is to see verses 1 through 6 as a section that establishes the fact of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. For me, 7 to 9 portray to us the majesty of that sovereignty, the magnitude of that sovereignty. And then 10 to 12 give us the response to that sovereignty of God. We'll just look at those three things and talk about some application along the way. Well, first let's consider Psalm 97 in its context. It's in a section of Psalms from 93 to 100 that we commonly call the Enthronement Psalms, the Kingship Psalms, all celebrate in some way, shape, or form the sovereignty of God, God who is the King of His people. And and so this series of Psalms from 93 to 100 is in some ways a a response, a reply to Psalm 89. We went through this uh, uh, several weeks ago. Psalm 89 ends Book 3 with a lament. Where is that king? Where is that son of David that God promised? Why are we waiting so long? It was written hundreds of years after, I think, after David had been king. Psalm 90, which opens Book 4, begins by reminding, it's a psalm of Moses, So here we are some generations after David. Psalm 90 jumps all the way back to Moses and says, remember who the king is? Remember who has saved us? Remember who we owe our allegiance to? And then Psalms 93 to 100 are just this litany, one after the other, of psalms of of praise to God's sovereignty. Now we've also been talking about the psalms as divine soul music, and I think here The music is the song of a soul that's been brought low, in a sense, humbled by the sovereignty of God, and yet also rejoicing in it with great thanksgiving and gladness. An interesting mix of responses. I think that humbling comes as a result of the way God is portrayed and His sovereignty is portrayed, the reality of it that's portrayed in the first six verses. Psalm opens with a call, a call to all of the earth to rejoice and be glad. Here I think the earth is a reference to creation itself, especially as the, the next few verses continue. Creation itself is to rejoice and be glad because the Lord reigns. Again, this Lord, which should be in small caps, I think, in most of your translations, is a reference to the covenant God. That covenant name of God, which can't be translated properly. The best we can come up with is Yahweh or Jehovah. This covenant Lord is the king, the sovereign over all creation. And so God's people are immediately drawn into this psalm from the beginning. The Lord, the God you know as your covenant Lord, is king over all of creation. He reigns. He rules. You could even translate the opening of the psalm as, as as simply as, The Lord is King. It's a reminder to God's covenant people, both Old and New Testament, that our God reigns, our God is King, and creation itself is called upon to rejoice and be glad at this truth. And then, the fact of God's sovereignty is shown to us in His Sovereignty over creation in verses 2 to 5. He's described as surrounded by clouds and thick darkness, which are reminders of God's appearances to his people. Remember in the wilderness, he appeared as a cloud and a fire, a fiery pillar. At Mount Sinai, the cloud, the dark cloud that enveloped the mountain. The cloud that filled the tabernacle and the temple. Or the cloud that surrounded Jesus at the transfiguration that we read for our New Testament reading. This is the God who reigns, surrounded by clouds and darkness, majestic, yet somewhat fearful, and somewhat remote, while still being very present. The foundation of his throne, it says, is righteousness and justice. In verse 2, what is right derives from His rule, and what is just depends upon His reign. It means anything that deviates from His definition of righteousness, which is found in Scripture, is a rebellion against His rule. And what is righteousness? Well, it's first of all faith. We want to jump to works, righteous works, righteous things that we do, but Scripture is quite clear. The just, the righteous, the shall live by faith. And the beginning of righteousness, the beginning of justice for us and for all of our society, is repentance and faith. The admission that we cannot, collectively or individually, achieve justice and righteousness on our own, either for ourselves or for others that we might be trying to help, or even for all of mankind. And the pursuit is futile, we know this, because of our own sin. And so it's imperative that people turn to God and accept the offer of righteousness that is given to them in Christ Jesus. That's why I've said over and over that if you want to improve our society, if you want to make things better, (laughs) then make more Christians. It's not going to come through other types of activity, whether politics or culture wars or anything else. Righteousness comes by faith, and righteousness and justice are the foundation of the throne of the sovereign God. Then, once we come to God in faith, then we are empowered to live righteously, to understand, accept, love, and obey God's laws, to see them as beautiful and wonderful and a wise pattern, a wise standard for life in its true fullness and its true fulfillment. Righteousness, justice, are the foundation of His throne, of His reign. A powerful statement. Fire goes before the Lord. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees it and trembles. Again, a vivid and powerful image that echoes many New Testament and Old Testament images. We're told the the mountains themselves melt like wax before the Lord. Who can stand before Him? All his adversaries are burned up. And so the heavens themselves proclaim his righteousness to anyone who's even paying attention. And all people see his glory. There is no one who has an excuse not to see the glory of God and to acknowledge his right to rule and to reign and to be sovereign. You can only suppress that truth and suppress it in unrighteousness rebellion as paul teaches in romans 1 so god is sovereign and the picture here is a little bit scary we should be a little bit fearful as we read this description of the sovereignty of god we've got fire and burning and lightning and mountains melting so it's no surprise when we read elsewhere in scripture that when people come into the presence of god they are terrified they fall on their faces often in terror the summary in Hebrews 12:29 that our God is a consuming fire, is appropriate for the experience of God's people when they come into his presence. Think of the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, pleading with Moses, don't ever let God speak to us again. You, you go talk to him and you go tell us what he says. They're utterly terrified as they hear the voice of the Lord in the thunder and in the cloud. Isaiah is confronted with the presence of the Lord and says, Woe is me, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. We're told Ezekiel fell face down before the Lord as he encountered the presence of God. Daniel recounts that his color changed. He went pale. He went white. (coughs) Habakkuk writes that his body trembled and his lips quivered. His bones felt rotten within him and his legs quivered. This is what happens when people come into the presence of the Lord. We saw it again in the New Testament reading. What happened when the voice spoke out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The three disciples (laughs) fell on their faces. Cannot minimize the reality of God's sovereignty, nor can we minimize its magnitude. This is described, I think, for us in verses 7 to 9. First, by a a comparison to the opposite. Anybody who puts their faith in, worships images, will be put to shame. Anybody who boasts in worthless idols will be put to shame. All the gods of creation are called upon to worship the Lord God. There's some debate about what the psalm is saying in verse 7 about all the gods. Is it a reference like Jesus uses? You know, he called you who are just people gods. Is this a call to all people to worship? Is it a call to all the angels, the Elohim? This is the word that's used here. Uh, Is it a call to all the Elohim, the angels, to worship God? Or is it a call to the false gods? to bow themselves down before him. The demons and the, those who would pour, uh, hold themselves up as, as false gods before mankind. Is it a call upon them to worship God? Well, I, I don't think we have to pick. <laughs> I think it's inclusive. Anybody who thinks he's a god, including the person who elevates his, himself to sovereignty, because that's what we're doing, right? Adam and Eve did that in the garden. We've been doing it ever since. I am a god. I get to make my own choices. So whether it's the individual the false gods, the demons, or the angels themselves, everything is to humble itself before the true God. Any worship of anything else, whether it's yourself, a demon, the devil himself, or even angels, is shameful and worthless. And who would be so foolish to worship that which is inferior and how stupid is it to make ourselves sovereign and worship ourselves instead of God? This folly can easily be seen in the world around us. if we just open our eyes and pay attention to what's going on. Well, then God's people enter into the picture quite clearly in verse 8. Zion hears and is glad the daughters of Judah rejoice. Why? Because of God's judgments. His judgments are superior to any other presumed authority, whether the self or any other fake God. So God's people rejoice. God's people are glad when they see God's judgments enacted. When those adversaries in verse 3 are burned up. When we see how in verse 10 he preserves the lives of his saints against the hand of the wicked. God's people rejoice when they see this happen. God's people are happy when they see evil punished and good rewarded. And just a thought here. This is, I, I brought this up before, but it just strikes me that one of the reasons we're falling prey to false ideas about sovereignty and, and God is we're letting, we're letting the things that kind of form our thinking in very subtle ways influence us. We used to tell stories where good triumphed over evil. Where good was good, and bad was bad, and good won. That's why I like Westerns. The good guys win. Now, they're not perfect. They're flawed, and they they make mistakes, and they even have their own evil that they have to contend with. But we're changing that today. The narrative is changing. Look at the musical, Wicked. Well, the the Green Witch really isn't so wicked. It's not really her fault. And the white witch, she's really not so good. Look at what that's subtly doing to the way we think about good and evil and who wins and who doesn't. And it's not just the stories we tell. It's our own opinions. It's our own decisions about life and things around us. How is it that we Christians have come to tolerate individual sovereignty in so many areas of life? It's because we don't see God as sovereign. We don't rejoice in His judgments. We want to make our own judgments. And we don't see the magnitude of His sovereignty. We're foolish. And quite frankly, we look shameful to ourselves and to the world around us. We value our own opinions about what is right and wrong and let those take precedence over what God says is right and wrong. And wrong in His Word. In fact, we even go so far as to twist His Word to make our preferences seem right. We need to recover the basic, simple principle that what God says is right, His judgments are right. They are cause for rejoicing, not rebellion. And our willingness to rejoice, our willingness to be glad at the judgments of the Lord God. That willingness is an acknowledgement that He is superior to any other false God. He is the Most High God. He is exalted above other gods. So, our thoughts and our words, our actions, the things we celebrate, the things we promote, should be reflections of this fundamental but also wonderful truth. Our God is great, our God is superior to all other gods anywhere, any place at any time. So the proper response is fleshed out in verses 10 to 12. Three responses, two of them related to one another, but three responses, I think. One, hate evil. Two, rejoice in the Lord. Three, give thanks to the Lord. Hate evil because the Lord preserves the, the lives of His saints from the hand of the wicked. Rejoice because light is sown For the righteous, and joy for the upright in heart. Light and joy, things that are connected, themes that are connected in Scripture. Light and joy, good things given to us from the hand of God our Savior. And then give thanks for all of this wonderful truth. Hate evil, rejoice, give thanks. What does it mean to hate evil? We tend to want to think of this as kind of an Old Testament idea not for the New Testament people of God. I mean, after all, we're called to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us. How can we hate evil? We can go back to Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Proverbs 8, 13. Amos 5, verse 15 has a simple command. Hate evil. But it's not just in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament as well. Paul writes to the Romans, chapter 12 and verse 9, and tells them not just to hate, but abhor. Abhor what is evil. And then while he's instructing the Corinthians on love, in chapter 13 of that first letter, in verse 6 he says, Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love does not rejoice in evil. If we love, we cannot rejoice in that which is evil or wicked. So what does hating evil mean? I think uh, there's many things we can say. I just want to focus on a couple this morning. I think it begins... Hating evil begins (laughs) with ourselves. (coughs) Do I hate the evil in myself? Do I hate the sin that I commit? Do I hate what that sin represents? If I'm honest with myself, I am, in the moment of committing that sin... Rebelling against God himself and his holiness and his sovereignty. And do I hate that sin that much that I'm willing to turn away from it in repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. That Jesus who came and lived and died to deal with my sin once and for all. So I think fearing God, loving him and loving our neighbor Means our hatred of evil begins with ourselves and what it means for our relationship with God, loving Him, but it also extends beyond ourselves to those around us, our neighbor. And not hating them, but hating the evil. And I would, there's many ways we can put this, but again, I want to focus on this. Hating the evil in our neighbor, I think, for a Christian, should result in sorrow, compassion for them rather than condemnation. For one thing, that's where we used to be. How, how hypocritical would it be for us to hate them and not have compassion for them? Think of the words of Jesus in Luke and other places where he looks upon Jerusalem, for example, and says, Alas! It's a, it's a word of, of sadness, of sorrow, of compassion. How tragic this is, how sad it is that this terrible evil is still present in these image-bearers of the Lord God Himself. They need the good and comforting words of love and peace and grace and assurance that come only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do I hate evil? Then my witness should be strong and ready and eager. Now, if this is true, if God has dealt with the evil in us, and we see him dealing with the evil in others around us, (laughs) how can we not rejoice? And how can we not give thanks? That is the response of the sovereign God, the one being in all of creation, outside of creation, truly, which we're studying in Genesis. The one being who exists, who can do something about evil. And He does it in us and for our friends and neighbors. If we see that manifestation of His sovereignty, how can we not rejoice? And how can we not be thankful? And so if God has saved you from the consequences of your own evil, your own sin, then do that. Rejoice and give thanks. And if you've seen God save you from yourself or from others, from the people uh, of evil around you. Again, rejoice and give thanks. And many of us have seen this. We know amongst our little body here of times when those among us have been under attack from wicked and evil people. And we've seen God protect and save us and watch over us. And we can rejoice and give thanks. And we know of and we have seen and we can rejoice as God has cleansed the evil from those around us, through repentance and faith in Christ. The psalm opens, the Lord reigns. Indeed he does. That is truth, that is fact. The Lord reigns. So the response, let the earth rejoice. And let we as people rejoice. And let us give thanks to his holy name. And let us pray. Our glorious King, our God and Father above, we do acknowledge and we do give thanks that you reign, that you are supreme, that you are sovereign. We ask that you would teach us not just the basics of this truth, but what it means for us, for how we think, for how we live, for how we act, for how we relate to those around us. Guide us and direct our steps, be with us in all that we do. Show yourself to be king. Show yourself to be ruler. May we see it. (coughs) And may we rejoice and be glad. We ask it all. Once again, our Father, in the precious, wonderful, and holy name of Christ our Savior. Amen.